Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on into the cabin and take a load off. It's been a fairly good week for me, but I'd like to make sure that we're all comfortable for our stories this evening. First up will be Brian Baru's Hollowed Ground. We heard from Brian fairly recently, just back in episode 166. Brian recently self-published a book on the religion Asatru, titled Odin's Chosen, a Handbook of Asatru. Asatru is an old Norse religion of the Vikings. It has taken many years of perfecting, and he feels that it has turned out beautifully. He has also started a prison kindred to help the prisoners with their religious difficulties. Not all prisons are allowing inmates to practice Asatru like other religions. The link to that book are included in the show notes. His wife also operates a Twitter account that would be at Odin Chosen. And now, Brian Baru's Hollowed Ground. Whatever you do, don't screw up, John barked, then pressed the wire cutters to my chest. I fumbled the other tools I'd been carrying, and everything fell with a resounding metal clang that echoed throughout the solemn night. Are you trying to call attention to us? John snapped and shot me an acidic glare. No, I replied sheepishly and avoided eye contact. Try not to wake the dead, he warned, and ducked through the newly made hole in the cemetery fence. I collected the tools and followed. This would be the last job with my psychotic, dope-fiend brother. Just like in our previous job, we'd met at a dive called Casper's. It reeked of stale beer and fresh vomit. We'd picked this place because John could score heroin and shoot up in the bathroom. He said it was his pre-job ritual. 
I'd found him deep in the land of Nod, in the toilet stall, with a spike still in his arm. I'd hoped the bastard wasn't dead yet, and kicked his foot. Slowly, his jaundiced eyes fluttered open. He cleaned up, and I ordered drinks. Then we discussed the specifics about the cemetery we were going to rob. The cemetery had once been a sacred grove, replete with rolling hills and a small reflection pond. However, economic setbacks in the 1970s caused funding to dry up and the gates to close. Slowly thereafter, it fell into disrepair and decay. Scores of teenagers snuck in over the years and sped its decline along by defacing tombstones, stealing statuary, and breaking into tombs. Years later, local papers had run stories about missing kids who had last been seen around the cemetery. Soon, rumors began to circulate about it being haunted, that malevolent forces were killing kids. One morning, pandemonium erupted when an unidentifiably mangled body was found at the gates. The words, keep out, were spelled in a gruesome display with its entrails. The police hunted the cemetery for months, looking for answers, but found none. As a panacea, they chained up the tombs, welded the gates closed, and installed razor wire across the top of the fence. No one had trespassed since, until now. Ankle-deep fog rolled and tumbled over headstones and fallen grave markers. The pale moonlight gave it an eerie, opalescent glow. It ebbed and flowed up to the fence, but didn't bleed out. Small, tendril-like skeletal fingers of fog arose around our legs when we breached the hallowed grounds. This is really weird, I said in a quivering tone. Do you think those rumors are true? I asked. Of course not. We've got a job to do, so pull it together, John snarled. Okay, I replied, dropping to one knee and made the sign of the cross. Lord, please protect me as I, John interrupted. No time for that. He pulled me to my feet and pushed me onward. A copse of weeping willows had been planted to give the cemetery a sleepy, peaceful vibe. It probably did decades ago, but without maintenance, they had become overgrown monstrosities with massive gnarled roots that burst from the ground. From a distance, they looked like blackened limbs of the dead. The gentle night breeze caused the limbs to sway and creak in a way that appeared they were beckoning us closer. John moved through the minefield of roots and toppled gravestones with a confidence that belied an extrasensory perception. I followed him the best I could, but tripped and stumbled trying to keep up. The deeper we progressed into the heart of the cemetery, the detritus changed. We now came across beer bottles, crushed cigarette packs, and used condoms. Tombs arose from the ground like rotten teeth in a diseased mouth, once white and pristine, now eroded with chips and cracks. John pulled out a crude map drawn on a cocktail napkin from Casper's. He shone his flashlight on it briefly 
and proclaimed, Just a little bit farther. We traversed through rows and columns of tombs and paused every few minutes to check the map. He pointed out the largest one, surrounded by a constellation of smaller ones. He illuminated the etching just above the cornerstone that read B7. This is it, John said. He nodded at me and pointed to the thick chain and padlock that ran through the door handles. I snapped the lock with the bolt cutters and removed the chain. Then I pulled out a set of lock picks and went to work on the lock set in the tomb steel door. He quickly defeated it and smiled. Ready to get paid? he asked. I don't have a good feeling about this, I warned. He shook his head and wrenched the door open. The ear-splitting screech of rusted metal hinges that had lain dormant for ages howled through the night. Damn it, he cursed, and a blood-curdling moan caterwauled in the distance. I looked at him with terror in my eyes. Let's go, I begged. No, we can't leave empty-handed. He'll kill us if we do, John reasoned. I can't do this alone. Please. He entered the abysmal darkness, and I begrudgingly followed. John flicked on his flashlight, and dust particles danced and floated in a light they'd been denied for eons. The light illuminated a large bronze casket resting on a stone edifice. Come on, he urged, and wedged a pry bar in one end of the burial lid. I wedged one in the opposite end, and we pried it open. The stench of rot rolled out and hung in the stale air. Hold the flashlight, John said, and rummaged through the coffin. What are we looking for? I asked. Don't know. He told me I'd know it when I found it, he replied. Just hurry up so we can get the hell out of here. I demanded. John rifled through the dead man's pockets. You want to do this? He snapped. Just then, its cold, rotting hands shot up and closed around his neck. A soul-jarring scream emitted from John as he futilely tried to break its grip. With a preternatural strength, it pulled John to its mouth and tore into his neck. Arterial blood pumped and sprayed across the wall. The cadaver sat up in his coffin with blood and gore dripping from its mouth. I looked on in horror while this monster slaked its thirst on my brother. John was dead within seconds. I dropped the flashlight and ran for my life. Later that night, at Casper's, my employer sat across from me. I take it everything went well? he asked. I stared into the space between us and said, I didn't expect it to be so horrific. He pushed a fat envelope across the table. Hesitantly, I reached for it and brushed his frigid hand. That was my last time, 
I told him as I pocketed the money. He raised an eyebrow and said, What if I double your fee? I sighed. You could triple it, and I'm not. Fine, triple, he offered. I shook my head and rose from the table. He looked up at me and said, I'll quadruple your fee. I sighed and sat back down. I've got to eat. He smiled and said, And so do we. That was Brian Baru's Hollowed Ground, as read by Fred Heimbaugh. Frederick Heimbaugh is best known to the world of science fiction for his contributions to the Hugo Award-winning podcast Starship Sofa as a guest commentator, reviewer of books and graphic novels, narrator, and songwriter. Fred's sci-fi songs include Earth Girl, Abraham Lincoln Was an Invader from Space, and the jazz chamber opera They're Made Out of Meat a setting of the story by Terry Bisson. Fred's choral compositions have been performed by the San Francisco Choral Artists, the Ann Arbor Cantana, the Ann Arbor Cantata Singers, and the Vocal Arts Ensemble of Ann Arbor. Thank you, Mr. Himba. Our second story for the evening will be Gina X. Grant's Acolyte. Gina X. Grant writes wacky urban fantasy with a host of crazy creatures. She is represented by Rosemary Stimola, the agent who also represents the Hunger Games series. Gina's Reluctant Reaper trilogy is available from Simon & Schuster's Pocket Star imprint. She lives in Toronto, Canada, just blocks from the house she grew up in. She's married to a friendly curmudgeon from a mining town in northern Ontario where he played hockey against Shania Twain's brother. Together, Gina and Mr. Grumpy live with a miscellany of rescued pets all named for famous jazz musicians. Gina hates jazz but enjoys Baroque and has been known to declare, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Gina is a member of the Toronto chapter of the Romance Writers of America and the Rainbow Romance Writers chapter. She also belongs to Sisters in Crime, SFWA, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and Novelists Incorporated. Under the pen name Storm Grant, writes and publishes engaging male-male fiction, more light than dark, since 2007, she has published with a variety of e-publishers, including Riptide Publishing, Amber Quill, Phase, MLR Press, and Tokery. And now, Gina X. Grant's Acolyte. At the appointed hour, Gabriel takes the bus to a dark and dirty part of town. The parts of town that tourist ads fail to mention but tourists seem to find anyway. He feels unclean just being there, but he steals himself and sets one foot before the other on sidewalks redolent with sin. His head throbs with their longing and the orders he must follow. He finds a car that suits, coaxing the engine with prayers and wire cutters. He cruises the boulevard slowly. Sleazy people, young and not so young, loll in doorways and against palm trees. 
The neon and fluorescent lights paint these whores in gruesome colors, reds, greens, and blues, outlined in shadow, grinning masks of those ripely dead. It's early, and there's a cocky sense of adventure in the eyes and attitudes of the boys and girls who work the street. The desperation would come later. He avoids the clichés and clatches, looking for the loner, the outcast, the one no one will miss, a misfit among misfits. He stops the car by the curb near a sour-looking creature, not sure if it's a boy or girl. It wanders over and leans in the open passenger window, forearms crossed on the frame. He sees breasts, a girl probably, although no guarantee. Want a date, she asks, eyes and voice, both prematurely dead. Do you have a friend? Gabriel asks, testing. Uh, what for? I thought you wanted me. A statement transformed to a plaintive question. She's devastated. A lifetime of rejection makes for thinner skin, not thicker. Then she gets what he means. Perhaps she's not been long at her wicked trade. Oh, a menage thingy. Uh, I can ask around. Her butchery of the foreign phrase tells him he's found the right one quickly tonight. She's undereducated, underage, and overweight. She's perfect. She stares up and down the strip, but finds no one to approach. She has no friend in the world. For a moment, Gabriel's heart bleeds. She's lonely, like him. But he can fix that. Take away the pain. Gift her with salvation. After tonight, she'll never be lonely again. Climb in, he says. It's a command. She's used to them. She slumps into the passenger seat. Got a cigarette? Is the only thing she says. At my house, I have many things. Trusting, self-destructive, or perhaps a bit simple. Any of these, all of these. It matters not to him, and certainly not to them. She stares out the window as the pastel blocks slide by. When they reach his house, he expects some comment, a remark on its historic design, well-tended garden, proximity to the canal, or its isolation and barbed wire-topped fencing. You got a dog? she asks instead. It's a child's question, and he doesn't bother to answer. She doesn't seem to expect one. She gulps the iced tea he gives her. Sinning is thirsty work. She slops a bit on her chest, where her deep neckline displays tiny breasts and a bad case of heat rash. The drug kicks in quickly, and she topples from her chair. She flails about on the tile, reminding him of a favorite childhood pastime when he clipped the wings from a palmetto bug and braced it on its back. Fascinated by the struggle to right itself, to survive, they never did. He smiles at the fond memory. Her limbs flop about, her control gone, pink foam dribbling from her waxy red mouth. There's fear in her eyes, 
animal fear. The drug transfigures her scream to a strained whimper, like shouting in a nightmare. But she won't wake up from this. So simple, so elegant, death in a glass of iced tea. The Diffenbachia, for silence, he grows in his garden. The jellyfish, for paralysis, he collects on the beach. The river gods don't like dead prey, although once they've killed it, they often let it age before consuming it. He knows this. He knows it all. He's been watching them for a long, long time. Gabriel turns on his stove, watching the girl while the burner heats. When he lays the pads of his fingers on the glowing red element, he hears the sputter and crackle, smells burnt meat, and sees the wispy gray smoke rise from his hands, but the pain is grim in its absence. There, on his kitchen floor, he strips her, bearing breasts and vulva, truly a girl after all. Next, he must purify her inside and out. With tender care, he scours her body, a handful of Spanish moss serving as his brush. For soap, he employs a concoction of his own design, holy river water, garlic from his garden, and lemon juice from his trees. The final ingredient is common household bleach, a banal but effective antiseptic obtained from the local convenience store. It stings, he knows. He's used it as both purge and purify. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. During his own fast of two days and nights, he sluices away as much as he can of the evil she's done in her short but decadent life. He's utterly lost in the passion of this act of devotion transported to a divine plane. When he comes back to himself, he sees her skin is raw in places. Sometimes he's carried away in his zeal. 
He kisses and sucks these angry red spots, for he would not have etched them into her pasty skin unless the river gods so chose, and thus the wounds are holy. His palate stings with exquisite tastes, garlic, lemon, bleach, sweat, blood. Gabriel nearly swoons, but years of rigorous discipline have taught him to wait until final ecstasy is bestowed by their grace. He moves her to the screened-in porch at the back of his house. To tell the truth, her constant whimpering is getting on his nerves. She sounds like the dog she asked about earlier. He considers gagging her, but knows from prior experience they can still vocalize, so he doesn't waste his time. He snips a lock of her hair. It is stiff with dirt and gels. He secures it with a short length of pink ribbon, pink for girls, blue for boys. Yellow for the one he couldn't determine, even once it was naked. He places the memento carefully in the case with the others, black, chestnut, blonde, auburn, green. He removes the sole silver one, the only one tied with red ribbon. Raising it to his lips, he kisses it reverently. He misses his mother so much. Returning to his kitchen, he cleans and polishes with care, preserving the room's holiness for next time. The whore's clothing is stowed in a plastic shopping bag, which will be disposed of when he returns the borrowed car in the early dawn. He'll have trouble driving then. He always does, after his ecstasy, the euphoria of rapture remaining with him for days. He shudders at the prospect of pleasure, his head at his cock throbbing in rhythm. Completing his undertaking in the kitchen, he returns to her side. He croons reassurances, telling her it's going to be all right, and lifting her gently, carries her to his backyard. With reverence, he paces off exactly one hundred steps from his back porch to the sacred altar. Twenty more paces across its wooden planks places them well out over the water. The moon is high and the stars shine bright. He kisses her moist forehead and lays her gently down. A mosaic of dark stains marking the spot, a testament to those who have gone before her. The canal was once an angry and unpredictable river where the god-kings roamed and ruled at will. Evil, ignorant men have harnessed the divine river, a desecration of their holy homeland. They still rule here, but in secret and under the cover of night. They depend on Gabriel to bring them sacrifices befitting their majesty. Gabriel's lived all his life in this house by the canal. He was born there, a glorious and painful birth, as he was told repeatedly, and for which he was punished repeatedly. His mother first showed him the river gods when he was seven, acquainting him with their hunger, teaching him to satisfy their want. She had no holy potion such as Gabriel concocted, nor was one needed. 
His father was a man of habit. He drank. He beat them. He passed out. Gabriel didn't miss his father very much. When he was old enough to hear the call himself, he understood and answered immediately. The cessation of pain and orgy of bliss were worth it. His mother would have been pleased. He loves this industrial area. The house, built far from town by his grandfather, is the only residence for miles. The canal is wide here, permitting good-sized vessels to dock at the warehouses flanking his property. These neighbors are dark for the night, depending on Dobermans and high-tech security systems to keep out the unwanted. Gabriel relies on the darkness, the isolation, and the privacy fence topped with barbed wire and broken bottles to shield his sacrament from the prying eyes of the unclean. He switches on a light installed just below the water surface. They're waiting. They're always waiting, light glinting off their scaly hides and yellow teeth. A hollow of hunger surrounds them. Although they've lived millennia, they've never learned patience. They begin to grumble and cough. Shh, my masters, soon, he begins the sacred rite. Holy masters, which art in the river, hallowed be thy names. Thy meat has come, thy will be done, on land as it is in the river. I give you this day your living meat. Forgive me my sins, as I forgive this evil sinner. And lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. For thine is the river, and the power and the meat for ever and ever. Amen. The pounding in his brain is exquisite as he makes the final preparations to his portly gift. He prolongs this part. It thrills him to have the power, and the greater his suffering now, the more intense his reward is when it's done. He runs his hand over her belly, the burns on his fingertips leaving damp trails. He suckles her breast, tasting and scenting her fear. She fears rape. She fears wrongly. Any pleasure derived from her tainted flesh would leave him cold compared with the ecstasy they will grant when it's done, and they shall all be sated together. His ears ring with a thunderous roar from the God-King, the largest and most ancient of them all. When the aftershocks subside, he hears a boat engine in the distance and is reminded he must hurry. With great reverence, he unfastens the latch on the holy ark. The red plastic drawers extend by mechanical magic, and pushing aside lures and floats, he draws out the sacred blade. Moonlight gleams on the serrated edge, revealing a dark patch of old blood. This is unacceptable and must be purified. In penance, he licks and suckles at the blade as he fed at her teat a moment before. His untamed blood must replace that of the sinner, 
rendering the blade and the vessel worthy again. He licks the sharp edge just once. This done, he gently opens each of her wrists, first right, then left, kissing them tenderly. At this moment he is purified and filled with love. He carefully collects the first outpouring in an ancient clay pot brought from Haiti by his grandfather's votum princess bride. Using the red ink that streams from her veins, he paints divine symbols on her sluggish and slug-like body, hoping to impart some divinity upon her sinner's form. He traces an outline of the knife upward on her belly, beginning at her hairline, like a cartoon erection. He coats each nipple in red. From throat to navel he draws a wavy line, a representation of the river itself. In the canal below there's much thrashing in anticipation, for the river gods know fresh blood when they smell it. It drips through the spaces between the planks, scenting the water, agitating their holy hunger. Golden eyes glow just above the surface, their snouts making darker shadows upon the black water. He coats her legs with blood to symbolize birth. There is much blood remaining, and he trembles with joy. In his famished state, his hands shake, and he can barely control the urge to chug the blood that will cleanse his very soul. Through this unworthy vessel, the river gods consecrate him. This is their blood I drink. This is their body I eat. He raises the cup to his lips, allowing a thin trickle to cross his tongue. It mixes with his own that seeps from the gashes made by his holy knife. His palate sings with delight, for this is the most holy and wondrous refreshment. Sweat pours from his skin, stinging his eyes and icing his spine. He trembles almost continuously now, skin tingling, the hair on his arms stand tall. He's burning, every cell in his body hums with energy. He's stronger, smarter, better than anyone, better than everyone for he is their chosen one. His breath quickens, and his erection knifes against his trousers. Gabriel staggers to his feet, ungainly in his fervor, his ardor. He must be naked now, now, now. The thrift-store clothing he wears for the procurement rips away, seems giving material rendering as his holy strength tears it from his body. The last of the blood in the cup is used to paint the same symbols on his body, so it mirrors hers. No need to draw the mocking erection on him, for his own is engorged and crimson in its thirst. He fears it will burst, and a font of blood will jet forth to further anoint the altar. It waves about like an extra limb, pointing him onward, urging him toward his completion. He examines his beautiful offering, for, indeed, she is beautiful now, bathed in moonlight and anointed with blood. Her mouth is slack, her breathing shallow, her eyelids droop, nearly obscuring her dull eyes. 
A tear leaks down one side of her face. He follows its path with his finger, leaving a streak of blood behind. Although hers or his, he no longer knows, nor cares. With quaking thighs and shaking hands, he struggles to lift her, her armpits slippery with sweat and more, but he is strong tonight and able to drape her enticingly over the edge of the altar, her blood-painted legs dangling inches above the surface. Now is the moment, the true test, to see if they approve. Will they accept his sacrifice? Does it please them? Is it good enough? Is he? They stare a long time, weighing his worthiness, judging his devotion. His heart almost ceases to beat. He can hardly breathe. He thrusts his pelvis against her back, pushing her a little more, a little further, the wait for their judgment is awful, and he is terrified that he will be found unworthy. The God-King disappears from view. Has he disdained the offering, found it unworthy? Gabriel can't breathe at all now. There's a tightness in his chest, like chains being drawn tight, and his left arm tingles. His vision darkens at the edges, and he feels his grip loosening. He totters forward, nearly letting go of the offering, almost pitching it into the dark waters himself. Please, 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 he prays, tears, anointing his cheeks as blood never could. This unworthy whore, this tainted sacrifice, must be enough. It is all he has to give. Gabriel jerks back in shock as the surface breaks in a tremendous explosion of roaring and water. He almost drops her. The God-King rises above the surface, hovering there, considering the offering. Gabriel's heart pounds. He gasps and pants, mouthfuls of blood choking him, cutting his breath. He shakes so hard he fears he's coming apart. The harlot manages to squirm a little, and Gabriel digs his nails into her flesh to keep from losing his grip. Finally, the God-King is done with his appraisal. He meets Gabriel's eyes and bows his great head once in acknowledgment of his gift. Still hovering above the water's churning surface, he moves closer to the altar. Gabriel pushes the gift out as far as his tired and shaking arms can manage. The fearsome jaws clamp down upon the holy gift, dragging her from his grasp. She does scream now, the drugs wearing off. She screams and struggles, but the scream becomes a gurgle as the god-king rolls once, dragging her beneath the surface. The water ripples and roils. The death dance is graceful, a miracle to behold. Their bone-crushing jaws bite down again and again as they all attempt to sanctify her at once. The God-King rests his divine gift away from his brethren, executing an exquisite death roll. A ghostly white arm breaks the surface, beckoning. In his ecstatic haze, Gabriel's tempted to follow. The God-King sinks from sight, hauling the unrecognizable mass to the bottom, finally drowning his living offering. The pale arm floats quietly for a moment until one of the lesser gods,
devours it. Their majesty leaves Gabriel trembling in awe. They have accepted his gift. He is saved. The water is darkened, appearing scarlet where it drifts near the light. The juicy salt tang in the brackish air thickens. Gabriel rises, tears of gratitude streaming down his face. He backs away in reverence and staggers to his house, barely reaching the screened-in porch before collapsing. He stuffs his fist in his mouth and bites down hard, drawing more blood. The pleasure is exquisite, worth all pain and risk. His penis swells and jerks, orgasm overtaking him as he comes and comes until he comes blood. And so the cycle renews. A day, a week, six months. It's not his place to know. They'll hunger for divine sacrament, and it will begin again. The gray ache behind his eyes, building, building until the pain is shattering, and he must act. Gabriel knows he's been lucky, satisfying the river gods with these dirty sinners, his humble offerings. But one day, one day soon, these tainted whores won't be enough, and the river god will call for him. A summons he will have no choice but to answer. That was Gina X. Grant's Acolyte, as read by Pete Falico. As a teenager, Pete wanted nothing more than to become a full-time disc jockey. His dad wanted him to become an educator instead. Studying the human voice in college seemed a happy medium, and a 36-year career as his speech therapist ensued. Helping people communicate during the day while playing jazz recordings at night on a local radio station soon became a comfortable compromise. Pete began programming jazz on the radio in the San Francisco and Monterey Bay areas in 1975. His efforts have been heard on radio stations KKUP, KPEN, KUSP, KRML, and KCSM. His show was initially called Doodlin', after the Horace Silver classic, but it soon evolved into the Doodlin' Lounge, where fantasy prevailed and emphasis was placed on blue note recording artists and hard bop grooves. Shows like these and others are now podcasts that are heard from Pete's website, www.doodlinlounge.com. He is one of the hosts of Evening Jazz on KCSM, the Bay Area's jazz station. Also can be found at www.kcsm.org. Along with his radio broadcasts and home studio podcasts, Pete has been involved in the voiceover business since 1985. He has been the voice of many Silicon Valley software companies, as well as the narrator for numerous documentaries. Pete is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called the Jazz Organ Fellowship, which can be found at www.jazzorganfellowship.org, and the owner of his own record label, Doodlin' Records. DoodleInRecords.com. Links will be in the show notes. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Take care of each other as you leave, and find us again here next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 